Well, good morning. Today, today's gospel passage is a cryptic one, and it comes to us via our lectionary. And as I was um, just poring over this passage this week, I'm struck with gratitude for the lectionary because it forces me to look at texts that I would maybe normally otherwise gloss over. Um, I mean, who wants to hear a sermon on taxes this morning? Am I right? <laughs> Unless it's, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Unless it's a tax refund. Um, that would be ideal. But no, in this short passage, Jesus uh, manages to so effectively wrangle his detractors that their heads are spinning when they walk away. We'll, uh, we'll move through the text in three movements, sort of two observations, and then we'll look at the heart of what Jesus is saying. Jesus exposes their fears, firstly. He exposes their landmines. And lastly, he exposes their debt. So would you pray with me once more, and we'll dive into the word. Lord, you, uh, as we've read this morning, said you will give us the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that we may know that it is you, the Lord. Lord, you have in your word such treasure, such hordes um, available to us. Would you give us ears to hear this morning your word proclaimed in Jesus' name? Amen. So Jesus exposes their fear the text says the Pharisees went and plotted on how to entangle him with their words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. They thought they had crafted the perfect plan. Now, these two groups were unlikely allies. We know the Pharisees were regularly stirring up trouble for Jesus and his followers, but what's unique about this is that they don't often cooperate with the ruling class, with the Herodians. Roman politics was not their game. Only when such a significant risk that would upset the status quo presented itself would they form such an alliance, and Jesus was one such status quo disruptor, wasn't he? In asking Jesus whether they thought it was lawful to pay this tax, they thought they had him backed into the corner. You can almost hear their smug giddiness. You see, if he's against the tax, well, then the government sympathetic Herodians would have all the proof they need to have him arrested and charged with sedition, that he was, in fact, amassing populist support to overthrow the government. And on the other hand, if he supported this deeply unpopular tax, he risked losing the support of many of his followers, many who believed that he would lead them to overthrow this foreign occupation. There's a lot of power dynamics at play here. And for a moment, let's marvel at Jesus. He's so uninterested in their power games. He's so self-assured, and yet the Pharisees and the powerful are terrified of him. Now, it wasn't that he was apolitical. He just wasn't interested in amassing political power. He says to Pilate later, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my, my followers would have been fighting to prevent my being handed over. And he certainly wasn't interested in currying favor with the religious establishment. If you look just a few verses prior to our reading this morning, Jesus has just wrapped up three stunningly bold parables, the parable of the two sons, parable of the tenants, parable of the wedding feast that we read last week. 
And each of them are a scathing indictment on Israel's religious leadership. Calls them wicked tenants who would be punished by death. Murderous wedding invitees who would try to sneak in without the proper attire. And at the same time, he's elevating the deplorables of his day, the tax collectors and prostitutes and those of undeniably immoral character. And they, the Pharisees and the Herodians, hated him. They wanted him out of the picture, but they knew the people believed he was a prophet. And so my first observation this morning is that to be unaware of Jesus' kingdom, or worse yet, opposed to it, is to live a life dominated by fear. The Pharisees were, of course, afraid of losing their influence over the people, and the Herodians were afraid of losing their influence in government. But each in their fear failed to see that Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this earth. They failed to recognize that in the economy of God, the last will be first that whoever would be great must first become a servant, that the meek would inherit the earth, that it's the poor that are blessed, the hungry and the thirsty, the peacemakers and the persecuted. No, the Pharisees and the Herodians did not know the never-ending, rock-solid, unwavering love of God, the love in which there is no fear because it's been cast out by perfect love. Friends, don't be surprised when your fidelity to Jesus and his kingdom exposes similar fears in those around you. Just a few chapters previous, Jesus teaches that a disciple's not above his teacher. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Friends, you're going to make different decisions because you have a different understanding of reality. You've got a different decision-making matrix. You've got a different set of priorities. Your identity is rooted in Christ Jesus. In rattling around in your head is the voice of your father saying, you are my beloved daughter, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so you're not interested in grasping for power or craving that external validation because you know who you are. You're aware that he will supply your every need according to his riches in glory. And so you might make a decision about your work, your career, or some new venture not based in, in worldly wisdom. Your sexual ethic is going to look different from the world's. Your parenting is going to look different. You're going to make different decisions, and people are not going to like it. Take heart, dear friends, that our Lord has walked this path before you. My second point is that Jesus exposes their landmines. How many of you know Minesweeper on your computer? Yeah, I love Minesweeper. I just learned this week that you can still play it online for free. Um, <laughs> that's what I did when I needed a brain break. Um, I remember being in computer class in high school, and I don't remember what we were supposed to be learning. But I do remember that what I was doing was becoming really good at Minesweeper. Um, one of the most frustrating things I was reminded this week is when you make your first click and you hit a mine right away and you're dead. But Jesus misses every mine. Teacher, we know that you're true and you teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care for anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. 
they would say. The Pharisees' tongues are dripping with insincerity. I don't know if you're like me, but if this was a movie, I would be yelling at the screen right now. Don't listen to them. They're lying to you. But Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He says, show me the coin for the tax. And they bring him the denarius. And he says to them, well, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? We know that the coin has Caesar's image on it. The inscription isn't quoted in the text, but we have the actual coins. We've seen them. On one side, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, he's the son of God. And on the other side, there was a reference to the high priest of the Roman pagan religion. So the reason this tax is so controversial is because they were required to pay it with this particular coin that hailed Caesar as God. Many believe that it was idolatrous even to possess this coin. And yet, who is it that produces the coin for inspection? Why, of course, it's our friends, the Pharisees. They happen to have one on hand. Jesus pulls the self-righteous rug out from underneath them. And he goes on to say, We'll render to Caesar what is the things that are Caesar's. Okay, on, on one level, yes. Jesus is making a political statement about how God's people should live in a pluralistic society. Living in a society and enjoying its benefits involves obedience to those God-sanctioned structures. And unfortunately, in this case, it means pay your taxes. And at the same time, while he approves of the tax, he undercuts the claim of Jesus, of rather Caesar's divinity. Render, the word render in this context doesn't mean just to give Caesar. It means to give back to Caesar. In other words, Jesus is saying if, if a kingdom of coins is what constitutes Caesar's divinity, well, let him have the coins. And if possessing, dear Pharisee, the coin is so offensive, then you had best rid yourself of it, unless, of course, you're willing to make an exception for its value. Friends, revel with me in the genius of our Lord. With the pressure on, with the trap laid, all eyes on him, he takes it in stride. No wonder, Dallas Willard points out, that the early church exclaimed that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is absolutely brilliant in this moment. And that brilliance, those treasures of wisdom and knowledge are ours in Christ Jesus. His divine insight is ours through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is simply putting into practice what he taught a few chapters earlier in Matthew when he said, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious on how you are to speak or what you will say, for you are to say what will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who is speaking through you. I wonder what situations you might find yourselves in what traps maybe have been laid for you? Maybe a gotcha moment an unbelieving family member hurls your way. Or perhaps on a larger scale as the church, what traps have been laid for us? What cultural landmines we must navigate? And they are significant landmines. But we need not fear and we need not be overwhelmed because we, his spirit-indwelt church, have been given the very mind of Christ. Take courage in that this morning. All right, what's the big point? 
what is Jesus getting at? Or as the British would say, what's he on about? Is this ultimately a lesson about taxes or how to be a good citizen in a pluralistic society? What does Jesus say that leaves people marveling? Well, he says this, render to God the things that are God's. Well, sure, on a certain level, we can infer that there are civil responsibilities that we have as believers, and then there's certain spiritual obligations, but that goes without saying. That's not something to marvel at. Of course, render to God the things that are God. I think what Jesus is saying here that so stuns his hearers is to return the coin stamped with the image of Caesar to Caesar. But that which is stamped with the image of God is owed wholly unto God. One early church father wrote that the image of God is not depicted in gold, but is drawn in human beings. The coin of Caesar is gold, but the humankind, but humankind rather, is the coin of God. We are the coin of God. Jesus is simply using this coin as a means to ask the crowd this question, who or what are you worshiping this morning? The Herodians and the Pharisees worshiped their power and their authority. For some in the crowd, maybe it was their love of money that was causing their hearts to compromise. But Jesus calls his hearers, calls you and me this morning to give ourselves wholly unto God. He's calling us to the sort of life that Paul calls out in the letter to the Thessalonians, a life full of faith, laboring in love, we've read, steadfast in the hope of Jesus, imitating the Lord in all that we do even when you're getting ready for church on Sunday morning. Full of the joy of the Holy Spirit, receiving the gospel with full conviction, awaiting his return to deliver us from the judgment of God. I'm tempted to look at certain passages like this where Paul waxes eloquent about how great a church is, as though this is some sort of gold star that he gives to that church as outstanding achievement. They get a little plaque, maybe, for their lobby, but the sort, of <laughs> the sort of life that Paul's talking about here, it's not optional. It's not outstanding. This is the expectation. This is the baseline. And I don't know about you, but I am woefully underachieving. And I, we know this is what Jesus is getting at because we'll read it in a few verses after, maybe next week in our lectionary. He sums up the law with the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, the problem that you and I have is that we fail so wonderfully at this. We get so easily turned in on ourselves. We're so quick to forget the gospel we're so prone to selfishness. If a life wholly devoted to God, if a life wholly devoted to God, wholly oriented towards him and his kingdom is what we in fact owe, then we have incurred a debt beyond our wildest dreams. With what fortune could we possibly hope to settle our account? Well, friends, Jesus is the true and better denarius. The denarius was the coin that would satisfy the demands of an earthly ruler, and our heavenly Father will accept nothing less than Jesus. 
and his perfectly lived life and death and resurrection. Where the denarius was created by men's hands, Jesus is the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We heard it echoed in our Isaiah passage this morning, from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You created a coin, Caesar. I created the cosmos, Jesus would reply. Where the denarius is stamped with the image of a God, Jesus is the image of the unseen God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I speak just as the Father has taught me, for I come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus returned the entirety of his life, every breath, every word, every moment and every decision back to the Father in worshipful adoration. Where the denarius represents the power of a long-forgotten ruler, Christ is the ruler over all creation. Tiberius is dead, and the Roman kingdom, Roman empire with him. But Jesus is even now seated at the right hand of God in glory. Praise be to God. Friends, God demands from us more than we could ever fathom. And by his grace, he has satisfied all of it. As you approach the table this morning, stretch out your hands and receive the most valuable currency you could fathom. The fullness of your debts paid by God himself. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.